They had a wonderful uh, weekend, last weekend, a wonderful Sunday with our guest speaker, Dr. Stringer, and and uh, I trust uh, you learned some things about uh, our Baptist heritage and uh, were uh, blessed by the preaching uh, and the Baptist uh, heritage based upon Bible principles last weekend. It was a blessing to me. Um, I don't know how many of you started reading some of the books that you perhaps uh, purchased uh, from Dr. Stringer. I, I started reading history again. I got the urge just to start teaching history again. So take out a three by five card, number from one to five, and we'll have a quiz. No, uh, I like to... Uh, uh, I like history, and Brother Stringer's book on United States history is a, has already been a real blessing to me, and uh, I'm thankful for uh, the work that he's done. Again, take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14, and uh, we'll uh, begin uh, or take up where we left off uh, last time, and um, we're going to talk about power for ministry. You say, well, this is just a message for uh, pastors and preachers and missionaries, right? Or maybe we'll include the Sunday school teachers. They're in the ministry. Uh, or maybe our prison ministry team, uh, they're ministers, uh, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, actually, this is one uh, message for everyone who names the name of Christ as their Savior. Everyone's in the, in the ministry, and so we're going to talk about power for the ministry. Uh, the scene here in John chapter 14 probably was somewhat of a shock and yet a, a, a scene of dismay as well. Uh, though Jesus had been telling his disciples for weeks and even months uh, about his impending death and his departure, uh, they're now faced very squarely with his last words to them. And the time has come for him to return to the Father. Uh, and they must be prepared to to continue on. He's been with them for three years or so, and now he's going to leave, and so they're going to have to continue without his presence, his bodily presence, that is. And we need to keep the theme of our context in mind as we look at this text. That's why I had uh, Brother Peterson read all 14 verses. Go back to, uh, that's a couple of messages ago, and we went looked at... Uh, uh, and the first part of this chapter, but uh, we need to keep it all in context. Jesus was preparing the disciples for living, working, ministering without his bodily presence. Uh, they had become so accustomed uh, to leaning on Christ, asking him what to do, waiting for maybe his actions, and then following him. Now they're going to face the world without Jesus actually being there physically. And because of this, He's giving them some divine consolation so their hearts might not be troubled. As he says, let not your heart be troubled. Now, it's obvious that the disciples had experienced something that none of us uh, are partaking of. That is that Jesus Christ was standing right there bodily, physically. He was speaking to them in an audible voice. He was watching them carry out his works and their uh, they're so in the habit of depending upon Christ and that they struggled with having to depend upon him uh, without him being there, but just depending upon him, on him spiritually. And the disciples had to wonder, you know, if all they had endured, uh, all that they had prepared for and developed over these previous three years, uh, now it was over, Christ is leaving, what are they going to do? 
Or are they going to go into a ministerial retirement? You know, well, we'll just retire. Jesus isn't here. We'll just have to retire. Uh, were they going to call it quits? Well, Jesus isn't going to be here, so I'm just going to quit. I'm going to go back to what I was doing before. Well, this is why our Lord began with those words there in the first verse. Let not your hearts be troubled. They were all troubled. And that's why heart, let not your heart be troubled. We often say, let not your hearts be troubled. But actually, if you read it there, it's very carefully, it's heart. And he's talking about them, each one as an individual. Uh, It's singular, not plural. Now, they may have had divisions among them from time to time, but now they were standing together with one heart. It was a troubled heart. And so our Lord unfolds these uh, for these disciples and all that would follow after him the way to consolation and courage in facing living the Christian life. And I want you to notice here in John chapter 14 how Christ gives comfort to us. First, in setting the focus of our faith in the Godhead. As you look through uh, this passage, you'll find God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All of them mentioned. Focus our faith in the Godhead. We're not to trust in ourselves or our merits or our strength. Our dependence is to be upon the living God who has become our Redeemer and our Mediator. And then secondly, we have a future in heaven. Uh, We're not just going to live here and die and then that's it. No, we have a future in heaven. Uh, And there's ample room for all who will trust Christ. Now we're going to keep going in the present if we understand the future. And that future culminates with the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his own. And then thirdly, we can take courage knowing the way to the Father, has been singularly mediated by the Son, our Savior. Uh, He has satisfied the justice of God uh, for us, has reconciled us to God. Uh, We now are adopted into His family. And we need not worry about getting to the Father. Christ has become the way uh, through the mediatorial offices of the prophet, the priest, and the king. Now, I'm kind of reviewing a little bit here and going back to some of the things that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And then, fourthly, we know the character and ways of God by seeing Jesus Christ, who has revealed God to us. Uh, he has explained God to our ignorant and darkened minds so that we can have the confidence of his works and ways. Now, the question we must return to concerning our ministry as Christians. Again, let me say, that's the main reason why we assemble here today. That's why we come to church. The main reason is to encourage one another in the ministry. If we're all in the ministry, it'd be bad, kind of rough and hard, difficult, and sometimes you might think so. Oh, I'm, I'm the only one out here. I'm the only one doing this. No, you may be alone at your job or at school you might feel that loneliness but you come together here on a Sunday to encourage one another and to know that there are other people facing the same problems you're facing same challenges that you're facing that's why we get together if someone today is here without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ And you can call yourself a Christian. You know, just calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. 
But as we've seen in our last message a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is the only way to the Father. That simply means that you must have faith in what Christ has done in your behalf, in his death, his burial, and resurrection. Ye must be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus. And once you're born again, you can become a child of God, and he's given you a work to do in his behalf. You know, if he didn't have something for you to do, then it would have been just the thing to do is just take you to heaven right away. Get saved and go. But he didn't do that. He saved you and he left you here to do a work. And no one is exempt from that work. Now the disciples received encouragement. They received consolation through Christ's words. But they still faced the question, well, how can we carry on without Jesus being right here with us? Now that's a fair question even for us. Uh, We're redeemed by the Lord only to be sent out in the world as salt and light, as lambs in the midst of wolves, as spiritual army uh, facing the wicked foe, as light in the midst of darkness. And without the bodily presence of Christ leading the charge, giving instructions, displaying divine power, how can we exercise real Christian ministry. You think, you know, it'd be a lot easier if Jesus would just come here and meet with us every Sunday and pump us up and get us going, right? Here it is. He's meeting with us. We may not see a body. We may not see him physically, but we have his word here. And we need to take courage as redeemed and ministering people. And let me say this, real Christian ministry takes the focus off of ourselves. Aren't we so selfish many times? We think, oh, woe is me. I have such difficult problems. Uh, I, hey, the, the world, it looks so neat, and I want to get involved in the things of the world. Real Christian ministry takes our focus off of ourselves, our problems, and the attractions of the world. And it points us to the priority of the kingdom of God, to eternity, to the glory of the Lord, and it rests in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. Now, uh, talking about ministry is one thing, but doing ministry is really quite another. How can we carry on the ministry of Christ in this world? How uh, Our Lord settles this issue for us right here in this text. He's telling us through uh, this particular passage how we do that. And there's really a twofold answer here to this question. First, the expanse of Christian ministry. Now, none of us would argue that Jesus Christ, he he had to be the greatest minister that ever set foot on this earth. You know, he said he came to be served, not to be served, but to serve. The word conveys the idea that is minister of, of one who is ministering to others. And we see the perfect model in the ministry of our Lord. And yet with three plus years of ministry after his baptism, Jesus ended by facing the jeers of the crowd, the mocking of the religious leaders, and rather than following the multitudes, they could be numbered easily by the biblical writers. In fact, we're told there were 120 in Jerusalem. Not quite that many here this morning. But, you know, we easily fit 120 people in this, in this room, right? 
Um, but then there were 500 brethren in Galilee. Now that might be a challenge for us, okay? We might have a little bit uh, difficult time getting 120 and another 500. That's 620 people. Uh, that'd be kind of everybody just standing, right? Remember the little quote ahead in the, in the uh, bulletin, it says there, the mark of an effective church is not how many people come, but how many people live differently as a result of coming. You know, it's not how many people we have, but it's how many people we have that live differently because they came. Imagine 620 followers after the most dynamic, powerful ministry ever exercised on the face of earth. 620 people were committed as disciples of the Lord of heaven and earth who came to meditate on the way to the Father. In many people's eyes, that would have not been very promising. Now we think, well, 620 people, that's a lot of people for us, right? But you think about that, that's not very many people. 620. Especially when you take into account the thousands who would follow Christ earlier, but then fell away. And our Lord is kind of passing the baton, so to speak, to his disciples. Now the ministry of the kingdom was theirs to carry out with this promise. It's our memory verse, verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now how can these disciples, how can we as Christ's disciples and followers do greater works than our Lord? You say, I can't do any greater than the Lord did, can I? He says you can. But first let's... Go back here. There's got to be a qualification for ministry. There's something attractive about Christian ministry in the eyes of many in our world. In a sense, being a Christian has become a popular thing. You know, the thought of doing good for others, giving assistance to people in need, displaying acts of gracious service, that kind of pushes the compassion button on people. A lot of people. And many will jump on board uh, to the work of the ministry. And they'll see the worthwhile way that Christianity can affect the world. But there's just one big, big problem. Unless a person comes to faith in Christ, they do not have the necessary qualification for ministry. You know, having served in a pastoral ministry for almost 25 years now, actually involved in church one way or another for about 50 years, I have observed many people with good intentions joining the noble cause of the Christian ministry. Unfortunately, some of those people have not met the first and primary qualification of being born again. Their acts of service cannot do anything to save them, and nor will it ultimately satisfy their deep spiritual need. Service brings delight and ultimate satisfaction only when it springs from a new nature born in the Spirit. And I want you to notice how Jesus repeats the qualification for ministry and spiritual blessing right here in the text that we're looking at. Now we saw in chapter, uh, in verse 1, 
that he speaks with an imperative. He says, ye believe in God, believe also in me. Then down in verse 11, another imperative. He says, believe in, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Now in verse 12, Jesus adds the amen, amen, so to speak. <coughs> amen, amen, or verily, verily, or truly, truly. Amen means what? So be it, right? Let it be so. And that's what he's saying here. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. Now, we can do a lot of talk about Christian ministry. We can describe all the worthwhile opportunities available. We can seek the op- mo- uh, to motivate all of us to get involved. But unless you've trusted Jesus Christ and his mediatorial work on your behalf, Christian ministry is the wrong place for you. It's too easy to trust our efforts, our own efforts, our own labors. And we hold them up before our eyes as personal justification before God. And yet Jesus has stated very clearly in so many passages, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. It is not the one who actively serves or does great feats in the name of Jesus Christ that has eternal life. It's not our service or our ministry that saves us. It is the work of Christ alone who is the way, the truth, and the life who calls us to repent of our sins and trust only in Him for our eternal salvation. My question is, have you been qualified for Christian ministry? The second thing is to notice the comparison in ministry. When the disciples struggled with the idea about their ministries over uh, that they were over since Christ was leaving, you know, we're going to retire, we're going to quit, Christ is gone, nothing for us to do. He now kind of stuns them with this promise. The works that I do shall be... Uh, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. And with all that Christ said, how can we do the same or even greater? Ever thought about that before? Well, I want you to think about it this morning. We're confronted with it in our text. How can you do the works that Christ did or even greater works? He says, first of all, the works... That I do, shall he do also. Uh, That could be viewed a couple of different ways. Uh, Our work is his work, and the type of work he does, uh, he did, we're going to do too. Our work is his work. When he initiates the work, and when it is done for his glory. The only strength and power we have for true Christian ministry is through that which uh, our ascended Lord has provided. Just as the Father was in the Son, working through him, Even so, as Christians, the Son is in the redeemed, working through us. Now, a little later in verse 20, we're going to see this very clearly. At that day, ye shall know that I am in the Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Uh, 1 Peter 4.11 puts it this way. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We also can view the passage as teaching us that the types of work he did, we too will do. Now granted, there are some exceptions in that area. 
You see, we're not capable of exercising omnipotence, are we? No, we're not omnipotent as the Lord was. He could control nature. He redirected the elements. He circumvented natural laws. While there are some few instances where the apostles would bring the dead back to life and bring about some extraordinary healings, this was an exception rather than the rule. You see, most of the believers we read about in the New Testament carried out the work of the gospel. How? By proclamation rather than preemptory works or signs and miracles. The focal point of Jesus' work was redemption. If we do the works that he does, then we will be about the work of reconciling lost people to the Father. That's a precisely what Paul said we are commissioned to do in first or second Corinthians chapter five. You know, there's a clear example of this in the Gospels, where Jesus had been involved in doing all sorts of miraculous works, and, and while the crowds were clamoring for more, he said to the disciples, Mark 1 38, he said, and he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. He didn't come just to do miracles and signs. He came to preach. It's the gospel work rather than the spectacular work that is the thrust of our Lord's promise here. And then notice, secondly, he says, The greater works than these shall ye do. How can we do anything greater than Jesus himself did? You know, some will take this as a verse uh, to refer to all kinds of miraculous acts, giving way to the theology of signs and wonders, health and wealth. But you know, we need to ask ourselves, what work is greater than saving a lost soul? Is there any work greater than saving a lost soul? Is physical healing greater? You know why it's not greater? It's temporary. Is feeding the multitudes greater? No, it's only temporary. They were, they were hungry the next day again. Is bringing someone back from the dead greater than saving a lost person? You think, wow, if I could really bring someone back from the dead, that would be really great. Hey, it's still temporary. Everybody that was raised from the dead, except for Jesus, died again. As amazing as that is, it's, it's only temporary. Only those works that last for eternity can be categorized as greater works. What work lasts for eternity? It's someone coming to Christ as their personal Savior and having everlasting life. So the question we face is whether we will surpass Jesus in terms of, uh, of greatness. Uh, that's really absurd. Uh, the weight of study on this word greater favors the idea of greater in scope or greater in proportion or greater in intensity, greater in impact. Because Christ has accomplished his redemptive work, then the impact of the gospel has a greater force. The spread of the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. Now that small band of early disciples, they could have fit into this this building. You know, we would have been really hard-pressed to get those early disciples all in here, but maybe, you know, we could have done it. 
But what happened after that? When they went out and they began to preach and teach the gospel, and millions upon millions of people have trusted Christ since then. I say that's greater. The greatness of the work was the fact that now the disciples would work from the vantage point of accomplished mediatorial work of Christ, what Christ did. It would be greater because our great high priest has passed into heavens before us and having carried out all the Father's redemptive plans. He did his Father's will. That brings us to the foundation for ministry. And this is why Jesus gives the foundation of ministry in this passage. He says, because I go unto my Father. Now you have to tie your interpretation of the works and greater works with this. This particular clause, this phrase here. Because I go unto my Father. It's the key to understanding what Jesus is referring to here. Rather than the works which Christ's followers could accomplish being what we would consider miraculous or spectacular, it has to be works based upon the finished work of Christ. What is greater, a temporal work or an eternal spiritual work? You see, we're not in the business of just making people comfortable. We're not in the business of entertaining people with concerts and contemporary praise music. We're not in the business of having the best potluck meal in all of Spooner. That's not our business. Our business is calling men and women, boys and girls, to eternal life and holiness in Jesus Christ. We have a right to do so because our Lord has gone to the Father. That is, He has gone to the cross. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. And we can minister the gospel of Christ and carry out the work of God's kingdom because our Lord has finished His saving work. There's an old hymn that captures the essence of this passage. It's entitled, A Charge to Keep. A charge to keep I have to God to glorify, a God to glorify, a never dying soul to save and fit it for the sky, to serve the present age my calling to fulfill, or may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Is that the kind of ministry that you're involved in? The expanse of the ministry. Notice, secondly, the provision for Christian ministry, and we need to move on. Sometimes it's the little words that provide great interpretational keys. Verse 13, it's actually the next verse here, what we're looking at. Verse 13 has a little word that's very important. It's the word and. A conjunction always ties things together. Conjunctions show that the themes have not changed, but are simply being enlarged upon. So in light of this, we see our Lord giving a promise for the expanse of our Christian ministry. And then he adds the provision for the Christian ministry in the work of prayer here in verses 13 and 14. Now, prayer is not just something we tag on to our busy Christian service. Nor is prayer simply a time to ask God to bless what we've come up with. 
Many times that's what we think. Well, Lord, I've got this great idea. Now bless it. No, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is a means of accomplishing great works for the kingdom of God. For prayer always places dependence upon our Lord as the source, the strength, and the power for our ministry. Now, there are some unbiblical views of prayer that might pervade people's uh, thoughts in our day. You know, many people will use prayer as a lucky charm, you know, to get what they need. Others will uh, use prayer as a vindicator of their plans and even their sins. They may have done said, well, I prayed about it. I've heard that one before. Some make prayer a religion in itself. But our text here casts aside such spurious views of prayer. Prayer in the teaching of Christ in our text is a means of divine provision for Christian ministry. Notice, first of all, the scope of prayer. He says, and whatsoever ye ask in my name. Our Lord here tells the disciples, showing the scope of prayer. The scope of prayer, that is the broad realm which prayer affects, is bounded by two key phrases. Number one, whatsoever, and in my name. First of all, whatsoever is certainly a broad term. Does our Lord mean that we can use prayer in the same way we use the Sears, Roebuck, and Company catalog? Now, some of you young people don't know what a Sears, Roebuck, Company catalog is. Some of you older folks have forgotten because you've slept since you used one. By the way, Sears is kind of on its way out anyway. Just like Montgomery Wards came and went. But some of you young people, you know what Amazon is, don't you? That's where you do all your shopping, Amazon.com. And so what about this? Is whatsoever, whatever you find on Amazon.com? Is prayer the time to bring our shopping list before God and greedily cry out for more and more and more? If the word whatsoever is to be taken in the broadest sense then there's no limit what I can able, I'd be able to ask in prayer of Jesus on his part and has, he's committed to do. I can pray for a new condominium in Florida with a swimming pool. Of course, it's right next to the golf course. I can pray for a brand new Ford F-150 for me and why not a Jaguar for my wife? I can pray for $10 million to be added supernaturally to my bank account. I can pray pray for a trip around the world on a luxury ocean liner. I can even pray for a trip to the Super Bowl. It's not that far away next year, right? And I can pray for perfect health. Now, is that what it is meant by whatsoever? Some people think so. You'd probably find something wrong with all these things I would be praying for. What's wrong with them? You know what's wrong with all those things I just listed? It's all about me. It'd be all about me. They're centered on me. They have nothing to do with the kingdom of God, nor His eternal issues, nor the glory of God. They relate only to my comfort, my pleasure, my uncontrolled desires. 
Does that not fall somewhat into the category of asking that you may consume it upon your lusts, as James puts it? All right, if we eliminate my want list, then what does the word imply? We need to see it in the context of what Jesus has already said. He's made great promises about the work of the ministry through the disciples, and they would naturally have had fears and reservations about that work. And so he gives them a critical key to carrying out their God-given task. And whatsoever you ask in my name, that will I do. This whatsoever has reference to those things related to the work of the ministry which he's given us to do. Now there's another key phrase in verse 13. In my name. We normally end our prayers with that phrase. In Jesus' name or in thy name we pray. Now is that what he's talking about here? I would hasten to point out that it's certainly appropriate to end our prayers with that phrase. But that's not what the text implies. Instead, the idea of praying or asking in Jesus' names brings the disciple, uh, disciples to the point of oneness and identi- uh, identity with the Lord. He has been commissioned to the ministry in the name of Christ. Now, Christ identifies, or the disciple identifies with the Lord. He joins his heart. He joins his mind with what Christ, uh, so that his request is the very thing that Christ himself would request. You see, to pray, pray in Christ's name is to pray with his authority as if he was making the request. Someone has written it this way, to ask in the name of another is ordinary language, to ask as drawing upon his resources. And as if you were one with him. That other is supposed to have, by position or by service, rendered a right and title to what is asked. He who asks in his name does so as being one with him, as drawing on his resources. And in like manner, to ask in the name of Jesus is to ask as being one with him. It is to renounce our own merit. It is to ask as one depending entirely on his divine resources. I hope you see the meaning of these words and how sometimes we just carelessly tag on to the end of our prayers in Jesus' name. And we think, well, I prayed in Jesus' name. I might have asked for all those things in my want list, but I said it in Jesus' name, so I should get it, right? To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in accord to his desires, to draw on his resources. Couldn't Jesus give me all those things? Certainly could. But again, why am I asking for those things? To glorify God or to glorify myself? It's a prayer that keeps our focus upon that which pleases the Lord rather than what is born out of our lusts and our untamed desires. Someone else put it this way, the things we ask are for our soul's good and not mere temporal benefits. Well, there goes my prayer list. Does this mean that our Lord has no concern about our temporary, uh, temporal affairs? Is he not concerned about you paying your bills or having a place to live, uh, food to eat? Yes, he is. 
We're living in this world and we have to deal with temporal things all the time. And our needs should be presented to him with confidence that he hears and answers. But what we must guard against is praying for those things that would be a detriment to our souls or a hindrance to our work in uh, God's kingdom and draw glory to ourselves or serve only to satisfy our untamed desires. Brings us to the response to prayer. Notice that Jesus himself, himself promises the disciples that since he was going to the Father, he would attend to their prayers. What a tremendous comfort that is. Jesus was going to be right there to the Father. He was going to intercede in our behalf. I cannot think of what, uh, uh, but think of what the writer of Hebrews stated. He said, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed from the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. See, that's our call. That's our invitation. Come boldly to the throne of grace. What a thought. Christ himself, who is glorified humanity in heaven, who awaits the gathering of his bride one glorious day, this same Christ hears when we pray, and he himself takes action to our, uh, to, to our request. Are you wondering if God in heaven even hears your prayers? Again, look at the text here. See the promise of Christian ministry which has been given to you. And then see how he's promised to answer our prayers according to his glorious purpose and name. He says, that will I do. As if that was not clear enough to these weary ears of the disciples. He says in verse 14, I will do it. And we need to learn to come with boldness and confidence before him and ask God-sized requests. Not these puny little requests that just satisfy our pleasure and our needs. But God-sized requests. We must not fear approaching Him with every need we have as His servants. He cares for us infinitely. I wonder, are you in, pract- are you in the practice of approaching the Lord in prayer? Is prayer one of those things you just do in case of emergency? Have you seen the That prayer is not just a trite religious exercise, but it's a vital expression of our souls to the Lord. Oh, how we need to be much in prayer. Because the work of the ministry, my ministry, your ministry, the ministry of this church, the ministry of the missionaries that we support depends upon this kind of prayer. The kingdom of God depends upon it. And our Lord delights in it. And notice the reason for prayer. Why pray if God already knows everything we need? And He does. Well, we pray, and our Lord hears and answers, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We're in the business to glorify God with all of our beings. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
When we see the, the, uh, that Christ has joined us to himself in the whole work of the ministry and that he commands us to ask that we might receive, the Father is glorified. If you think you're to pray just to get things, then you've missed the purpose of prayer. Believing prayer, prayer in the name of Christ, brings glory to the Father because it's in line with his eternal purpose. I'm not going to take time to read Ephesians 1, 15 to 19, or Ephesians 3, 14 to 19 this morning, but I would encourage you to write those references down and, and take a, a good view of biblical praying, the way Paul's prayers were for the church at Ephesus. We need to glorify our great Lord by doing those works which he has given us to do, by praying in his name, by asking for those things we need to carry out his, his ministry for his glory in this life as his servants. Are you here this morning and qualified for ministry? If you're not saved, you need to come to Christ. If you are, how is your ministry? How's your ministry at home, at work, at school? How's your ministry right here in this church? Are you making provision for ministry through prayer? Let's bow our heads in prayer this morning.